Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate is often called a threat multiplier because it can worsen already challenging situations. Climate insecurity is linked much to water insecurity, uh, which in our part of the world is also connected uh, to the conflict. And places experiencing ongoing armed conflict, such as Ukraine, how do those working to address the climate crisis keep moving forward? Practical action is something you, you can use to calm the fear, to calm the uncertainty. A Palestinian environmentalist says even in the midst of daily struggles, the climate emergency requires action. We are committed because if people like us give up, who else would do the job? Who else would keep the light of hope going? Climate action in conflict zones, up next on Climate One. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused horrific damage and casualties, in spite of Ukraine's heroic efforts to defend itself. The conflict has disrupted global energy markets, grain shipments, and is still impacting the global economy. All of this shoved climate further down the list of international priorities, as has happened so many times before. Yet within conflict zones, many brave individuals and organizations work every day to stave off the even greater threat of climate catastrophe. Today, we talk with two guests about the realities of operating environmental organizations in conflict zones and how to balance immediate needs with working toward a better future. Roman Zinchenko is co-founder of Greencubator, an organization focused on sustainable entrepreneurship, the green economy, and low-carbon innovations in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. For the last few months, Roman has been commuting between Ukraine's capital of Kyiv and his family's home city. I asked him to tell us a bit about his daily life in the middle of the ongoing war. So I'm lucky that all the lives in our family, uh, everybody's fine. We have no mm. properties destroyed. Uh, we do have we do have the friends serving in the army now. We do have the friends and partners who were uh, who were either wounded or killed during uh, during the fights, and uh, we are getting the information firsthand. And that's um, eye-opening. So mm. first, it's shocking. Then, like from my perspective, from my experience, it's a kind of uh, tremor and maybe panic. And then you're starting to act because, in my case, the practical action is something you you can use to calm the fear, to calm the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So we saw millions of people uh, leaving the country. We helped many of them. Well, one of one of our projects was building a shelter for the mothers with kids in Lviv that were going overseas. Uh, and uh, also, we have a different front, which is the front of economy, the front of business, the front of education, where we are serving. But um, the interesting point here is how people are focusing some of their efforts 
on the activities they they they, they are doing to uh, support the country to support the ukraine's defenders on the front lines to how they volunteer etc on another hand uh, i had the chance to see some uh, return of the let's say normal life to the some of the cities that heard um, rocket shelling and artillery shelling and now there they look really peaceful but when you are entering the city by car you see a range of the warehouses and homes burned down and armored vehicles still on the sides of the road that that were destroyed after the Russian invasion started so um, the country has its shocks and the war is a terrible thing and we lost a lot of brilliant people we uh, lost a lot of our heritage we lost a lot of our economy Uh, on the other hand it shows how adaptable we are and how we are able to uh, reinvent the way of living under tough situation i'm just curious um what it's like operating an environmental organization in a conflict zone where you're hearing from friends who are on the front lines and trying to balance those two things? Well, you're just getting uh, several new layers of uh, the picture of the world and you are adding some new layers of uh, activities and uh, slashing the redundant uh, the redundancies so in our case we donated all our pv modules we had in our offices to the need for the military we started the foundation to provide assistance for the defenders of Ukraine. Uh, we made sure all our friends uh, we we know who are serving in the army now, they're getting the protection, the communication equipment and support they need because, well, Ukraine had to grow the army uh, more than uh, triple fold starting the Russian invasion. Uh, and at some point you understand that you still have your job and your front to fight and this is the front of serving green economy so we almost restored uh, all our programs that were operational before the full-scale russian invasion and of course we had a lot of you know dual lives we are living dual lives so i'm the project manager in the foundation and i'm the and i'm the project leader in green incubator and also i'm a father and a friend and the son so a lot of these roles have some a lot of nuances added etc it's an interesting juxtaposition of time frames you know sending solar equipment to the frontline troops and you know the, the needs immediate uh, fighting needs of today and building companies and technologies and giving funds to entrepreneurs who are trying to build something on a longer time frame in the peaceful areas. How do you compare adapting to war to adapting to climate change, those things that operate on different timescales and have a different human face? Uh, I think there is a real danger in terms of climate change that it's not so visible. So uh, still some people uh, managed to deny the war. Still some people in in Russia, not just in Russia, saying, oh, no, no, there is no war, that's just special operation. The climate change is crawling. Th- but so you, you, you can't hear in the morning that the rockets are hitting your city. 
Yeah, so with the climate change, sure, there are some uh, some wildfires in the forests. There are some deforestation, uh, losses of uh, natural diversity, losses of land fertility, and many other challenges. But the danger of the climate change, it comes slowly and it creeps in until someday you just see that your land is no longer fertile without irrigation and you just cannot ensure irrigation on this land because the water levels in the rivers were lost. So the war is loud. The climate change, not always. But on the other hand, well, we had eight years of the war, invisible war before that, after Russia annexed the Crimea. So the impact of climate change may be harder to see and harder to hit the front lines of the media. Uh, but that's why we should work on that too, because from the environmental damage perspective, not just Ukraine, but the world was hit immensely hard and the environmental losses of, of this Russian uh, invasion are huge. The fires, the spillover of toxic chemicals, the burnt uh, oil depots, uh, the explosives uh, that are now uh, laying in our fields and and our forests. So there's a lot of environmental damage. Right. And people don't often think about war and cancer, though the U.S. Congress recently passed some funding for veterans of American troops who have high incidences of cancer, in part because of the burn pits that the uh, military uses to, to burn you know, many of their equipment, et cetera, and, and people get cancer long after uh, they've, they've been a serving in the military. Well, let's connect you know, the war with energy. How is the war connected with climate? And how does Russia view renewable energy? Well, there is a very interesting document of the Russian national security uh, strategy. If I'm not mistaken, it was adopted in the spring 2015, which directly quotes the proliferation of renewable energy, new energy sources, and energy efficiency as a direct threat to the Russian national security. And um, the current war Russia started against Ukraine is clearly fossil-funded. So... Mm -hmm. Even with the current sanctions, even with the Russia uh, choking the large parts of Europe with the uh, shrinking gas supplies, because, for example, on the Finnish border, they just started to burn the huge amount of nat natural gas they were pumping to, to Finland and some other European customers. And you imagine the level of CO2 from that, from that uh, uh, huge fires. Um, the current invasion is fossil funded and it's funded uh, through building the energy dictatorship. So Russia had been working tirelessly for over the decades to build that energy grip and they continue doing that. They continue doing that not just through the gas, but they also keep continuing it through the uh, nuclear and they are now very active promoting the their nuclear technologies and nuclear power stations for many countries, including the countries of Africa, uh, which would tie them for decades to the Russian technology, the source of uh, the source of nuclear fuel, and other things. 
The strange story actually is Ukrainian uh, oil and gas fields were the starting point right after the World War II that they were first fueling the large parts of the Soviet Union and now we are a large transit player in terms of supplying Russian gas from Siberian oil uh, oil and gas fields uh, to to Europe. And um, Russia undermined all of the diversification efforts. Russia undermined all of the uh, energy efficiency efforts. And it was paid handsomely for all the rockets hitting Ukrainian cities now for the oil and gas. So that's clearly the war of the energy dictatorship, because we can clearly say that Russia is the energy dictatorship uh, on one hand, and that's clearly the war of the old energy technology against new energy technology and against the market approaches, etc. We are paying the big price, the tragic price for the world to see that, to witness that, to understand that. We are paying the price of the thousands and thousands of lives lost and uh, cities and villages raised from the uh, from the earth but still we we are holding we are a resilient country we have resilient communities and i think that this uh, th- this period would be also a huge push towards the new opportunities for ukraine as the player in the energy field as the player in sustainability field and as a player also in the business field Coming up, what energy lessons should the world take from witnessing Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, the first energy lesson in this case is stifling the innovation for the sake of your future enemy is a bad strategy. And we should be honest, the world was stifling a lot of innovations in the energy field motivated by cheap Russian gas. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Today, we're focused on the challenges of working toward climate action in conflict zones. Let's return to my conversation with Roman Zinchenko, co-founder of Greencubator, an organization focused on sustainable entrepreneurship and innovation in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Prior to Russia's invasion in February, Ukraine was connected to the Russian electric grid. Roman says the invasion and resulting disconnection of the two countries' grids forced Ukraine to accelerate its plan to join the European energy market and now we are synchronized with the European energy grid. We are one of the exporters there because we have energy profit at the moment. Due to the Russian invasion, we have lost a lot of industrial capacities in the east and in the south. So many of them were destroyed. Many, uh, Some of them were shut down. The economic activity is now rebounding, but still, you know, if you are losing the uh, steel plant, that's the huge consumer 
of the energy. So we have energy profit now and Ukraine is exporting some of the energy to European Union, also to Moldova. Uh, and I do hope that we will be benefiting in terms of uh, grid innovations, including the energy storage system. Our parliament has recently passed a new law allowing the energy storage systems to be integrating in the grid, including, for example, biogas uh, integration into nat natural gas distribution grids and some other activities and also ukraine is very actively discussing green hydrogen partnerships with the european union countries the challenge is that uh, some of these projects were uh, planned in the southern parts of ukraine and some of these parts are now occupied by the russian troops but luckily the part of in the odessa region where the sun is uh, immensely uh, generous and rich uh, they are uh, they have the potential uh, so this is the free land and they have the potential for this project's development so this is a lot of work and i should say that ukraine the people in ukraine's energy sector they are super resilient and i'm extremely proud of their sometimes life risking effort to keep the country with the power to keep the lights on and uh, to restore what was uh, to restore what was destroyed during the fighting so it sounds like since World War II, Russia cultivated Ukraine's dependence on Russian sources of energy, squashed innovation, squashed efficiency, and Ukraine adapted pretty quickly in connecting its electric grid to Europe, cutting it off from from Russia. Now uh, Ukraine has a surplus of electricity because factories are not operating and you, you're moving, at least in an energy sense, closer to Europe, which is supposedly what this was, um, this war was supposedly to prevent in the first place. Is distributed energy more resilient? We saw Russian forces attacking a Ukrainian nuclear plant. Are you now uh, much more resilient and adaptive because you're more decentralized? Well, the decentralized energy system is yet to be built in Ukraine, but I'm really proud that uh, my co-founder and brother, Andriy, has uh, invested a lot of his efforts and significant part of his life into making decentralized energy system happen. So one of the Green Cubator spin-offs, the project which is called Solar Town, uh, is uh, the municipal solar energy cooperative in the city of Slavutich. Slavutich is Ukraine's youngest city. It was built to replace Pripyat after Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And this is the city built for nuclear engineers that were running Chernobyl nuclear power plant after the explosion in 1986. Uh, Slavutich was occupied for some time and there was also a loss of power, the loss of uh, electricity grid. So the energy co-op, which is 250 kilowatts uh, solar power station, was an important backup power for the community of the cities and they were able to use some of the, uh, some of the energy for it to power the communications, uh, to get some life-needed energy. Luckily, the city is practically intact and there was no big fighting there so it's now free part of ukraine uh, but we saw it on the other hand there is now increasing movement of the ukrainian solar station home solar uh, owners to convert them from the grid uh, uh, to con connect them from the network stations uh, working in sync with grid with the hybrid stations and they're preparing maybe for hard winter because that 
winter would be really tough for Ukrainian energy system, including the heat supply. And we are lying to a large extent to the centralized uh, heat supply in our cities. And uh, people are installing a lot of energy storage and they're making sure that their solar production would be working independently if grid is on or if grid is off. Is that storage on the individual home level? And, and how are people, um, how is that funded? Well, it's self-funded. The feed-in tariff in Ukraine was pretty attractive model for this uh, for the renewable generation stimulation. Uh, it was tied to the hard currency. It was pretty high. So a lot of people were installing solar systems at, at their homes as a alternative investment models. And the payback periods for the home solar was around six to seven years, which is nice. Mm, that's, that's pretty good, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the prices were high. The problem is currently the currently the, the, the government policy is not providing that support any, any longer. Uh, but there's another uh, model we are witnessing the we are witnessing the energy prices hikes and a lot of large businesses are considering uh, to have their own solar arrays solar station to compensate part of their consumption and these are pretty large uh, pretty large installations on the logistics centers supermarkets uh, etc so uh, but the war is not the best time for making these investments but before before the full scale invasion that was a really important trend and we have also another trend the uh, there's a lot of ideas voiced regarding the green recovery and the green recovery plan of ukraine for rebuilding the cities and homes that were destroyed yeah, and we've seen that in other places that have been hit by, you know, hurricanes. You know, Haiti had a, a recovery of their electric system that was more distributed in solar. And it's interesting to watch that. You know, pulling back, what lessons should the world take from witnessing Russia's invasion in, of Ukraine as it relates to energy? What's the energy lesson of this story? Well, the first energy lesson in this case is stifling the innovation for the sake of your future enemy is a bad strategy. And we should be honest, the world was stifling a lot of innovations in the energy field, motivated by uh, cheap Russian gas. So now it's no longer cheap. And it costs a lot for everybody. This is the first thing. Uh, the second very uh, practical thing, civic passum parabellum. So you should be prepared for the fight and what is saving ukraine now we had this fight for eight years since the russian annexation of crimea we had hidden but active war and a lot of ukrainian uh, defenders learned how to work in that and thirdly yes invest in the resilient energy systems that are stress tested that uh, can provide at least the basic needs uh, in uh, case uh, of uh, major hits, in case of major attacks, in case of cyber attacks, or just physical destruction by, by kinetic or other weapons. So resiliency is really important, and resiliency of energy systems is uber important because, well, we do not sometimes understand that this basic convenience is very fragile. 
Right. And I saw that uh, this month, the U.S. Department of Energy sent $30 million in emergency funds to advance both the integration of the Ukrainian grid with Europe and also to address those cyber and physical security things you're you're talking about. You know, how is the idea of energy independence tied to your idea of personal freedom and freedom from Russia's energy dictatorship? That was actually the core idea in uh, Green Incubator's creation 13 years ago. So my dad, who is history professor, my brother Andrei, and me were just saving money. During the crisis of 2008, where we lost our businesses, jobs, and what we were doing, we were doing installation of the heating systems and electricity uh, by ourselves. Uh, my dad's first diploma is uh, electrical engineering, second is math, and third is history. So he had some training and we were doing it with also with some basic experience. And we faced the really significant uh, challenge that was the challenge of connecting this single family home the like the country home to the grid and it took extra effort to avoid any bribes uh, on getting that place connected so from that we understood ooh there is some pain point for the country and later we learned that there is also a huge pain point for the businesses that are facing significant challenges getting access to the electricity to run the business and to pay for this electricity and that wasn't the most transparent practices and corruption free practices in this market so that was actually one of the sources where idea for green incubator arrived another source was actually crimea we were doing the small consulting project in the city of sebastopol and we were surprised how such a, a sun-rich land is not using the renewables they should have been using, and they were just uh, heating. They were they were heating the water in the hotels with electricity while they could easily put the solar heaters on their roofs. So that was another source of inspiration. So at some point we just came with the idea of Green Incubator being the source of prosperity, new business idea, partnerships for the green businesses of Ukraine. And now we are doing, we are serving the trope. My brother is helping to launch energy cooperatives. I'm focusing more on the broader spectrum of sustainability-minded entrepreneurs. But at uh, some point, post probably 2015, we also hold the conference named energy democracy against energy dictatorship. Ukrainians, as both many individuals and many institutions, have been warning that the energy dictatorship would hit someday. And the Nord Stream 2 was one of that big warning, but the world preferred to keep that uh, gas pipeline being built until the invasion hit. Well, Roman, thank you so much for sharing your story and your time. And I don't the loss of words for what you're going through and balancing uh, during the Russian invasion to try to build a cleaner, more independent future for your country and your family. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me here. And also thank you very much for you and all your team for raising the new generation of climate innovators, climate entrepreneurs, and climate-minded thinkers. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine has dominated headlines for most of the year, but many parts of the world have seen sustained armed conflict for decades. Nada Majdalani is a Palestinian whose whole life has been shaped by perennial conflict in the Middle East. I was born in Bulgaria. Uh, we moved then to uh, Tunisia and Libya and uh, my parents before that were also all over the place between Syria and Lebanon. So the notion that we, we didn't have somewhere to settle was was something not actually very nice for a child because uh, mm. moving around means that you cannot sustain friends and you cannot, you know, keep relationships. In 1993, a pair of agreements known as the Oslo Accords were signed between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization, a major milestone in the peace process. Following those accords, Nada and her family returned to Palestine. She was 11 years old. It was like a, a dream. Uh, it, I, I remember crossing back uh, from, from Jordan to, to Palestine with a truck full of boxes and memories from... Um, all the places that my parents were were living at and uh, we were moving around. Uh, so to just come back and settle down and call somewhere home and eventually mm. I'm home, it's, it's something that is unexplainable. And to me, to cross to the land of uh, orange grooves and... Uh, and all these emotional, you know, uh, things that connected us to the land was, it was really amazing. It was an amazing moment. And just then I felt that I'm home. Mm, for the first time. For the first time. I felt mm. settled in. And how much did your family think that now peace would break out and all would be, well, it was a time of high hopes? It was um, for everyone. And uh, to be honest, it, uh, it turned out to be very disappointing. Um, I think uh, both sides, Palestinians and Israelis, have failed to lead us where we should be. We should be living side by side and uh, in peace and uh, understanding uh, that we have a shared future together. Nada is now the Palestinian director of EcoPeace Middle East, a collaboration of Jordanian, Palestinian, and Israeli environmentalists working on water security, regional integration, and sustainable solutions. The group's Israeli director and co-founder, Guidome Bromberg, was planning to join this conversation but was unable to at the last minute. Nada Majdalani began working on environmental peace-building projects in high school. She says that experience informs her work educating youth in Palestine, Jordan, and Israel. I think anything that um, a teenager or a child gets exposed to uh, during this uh, time of, of growth and maturing and understanding their, the surroundings pretty much shapes their personality, their interests, and, and shape somehow the path and the skills that they have towards approaching their careers and their, their interests of, of how they want to, to lead their lives in the future. When I was a, a teenager, my uh, teacher at school exposed me to environmental peace building. And it was just right after 
again, the signing of the Oslo Accords when uh, people had high hopes for peace, when uh, we didn't even want peace only between you know, um, between politicians, there needed to be a people to people movement to establish relationships between people as humans and uh, as individuals that share uh, common interests. So I was involved in environmental peace building um, camps and, and programs. And this grew up with me throughout uh, college and university. And when I came back, uh, from my master's degree, I really wanted such a job. And it's basically a job that came true uh, for me to join EcoPeace because it really resembles what I really wanted to, to do since I was a teenager. And how this reflects on what we do with, with Palestinian, Israeli, and Jordanian students is, is, is very much in terms of um, how we can really engage with those students, not only on the understanding of the technical issues or understanding the science behind environmental issues or climate change. It's much more about how we build individuals who are agents of change, who are willing to um, become uh, community activists or national activists uh, on environmental and, and climate issues. Uh, we change individuals. It's, an, it's a journey of individual transformation. For example, once received a message from a mom, she began the message with, what have you done to my son? And we were really scared. And we, we thought, oh my goodness, what happened to her son? She said he came back from a regional summer camp uh, in Jordan, where he met Palestinian Israelis and Jordanians uh, from his age, he came back much more interested to listen to the news. He became much more interested to get uh, volunteering uh, activities within his community and within his school. He wanted to start working out because he also felt that he wants to become more fit and more healthy. These are the individual transformations that we're looking for. And it's just a snowball effect because once you change one individual, it becomes infectious to the whole community and to your family. And this is really rewarding. This is exactly what I like about this job because I see specifically with working with young people, a very quick return. That's very powerful. And I can imagine that's especially powerful uh, you know, eco-doom is something that young people talk about and struggle with, the idea that like, oh, we don't, you know, our future is really dark. I imagine what that's like in uh, a situation where there's been generations of, of armed conflict and people might have even, you know, another layer of reason to feel doubtful about their future. So do, do you encounter that overcoming kind of that eco-doom we do, but as you mentioned, there's uh, another layer of, of fear uh, of the future because uh, uh, environmental issues, climate insecurity is linked much to water insecurity, uh, which in our part of the world is also connected uh, to the conflict. Um, specifically for Palestinians who uh, 
are not uh, in full control of their uh, water resources um, and access to land and access to um, basically uh, free movement um, um, and even freedom of speech and activism. Uh, so in that sense, yes, uh, young Palestinians um, fear, fear from the future and fear from the current situation at which um, um, they, they see that there's uh, shrinking spaces, uh, limiting, uh, e exponentially limited uh, opportunities for growth. And uh, this cannot basically lead to a healthy future and sustainable future for all people in the region. And this is exactly where we, not only on the level of students and youth, but also among uh, several of our participants and stakeholders that we speak with from the three countries, Palestine, Israel, and Jordan, we try to make them understand that um, our destinies are very much connected. If uh, pollution happens on one side, the other side is not immune. If um, uh, water insecurity is on one side, it means that your neighbor is not happy. Your neighbor is, is suffering of lack of opportunities and frustration, and this frustration could blow up in your face. And this is exactly, for example, what, what happens in Gaza Strip where people, 2 million people under blockade for the past 15, 16 years, um, lack of food and, and medicine supplies, uh, lack of access to water, energy insecurity. As we speak, Gaza has 16 hours of darkness versus four hours of electricity. And you can imagine how this reflects on, again, the aspirations of people and how the reactions um, reflect on, again, the regional and the overall conventional meaning of security in the area. And in security circles, militaries around the world talk about climate as a threat multiplier. Uh, what is Ecopeace's Middle East approach to diffusing that threat multiplier? Well, we do recognize the literature and the the uh, um, also the explanations and the notion that uh, military establishments such as the NATO and uh, also their uh, reports by CIA, etc., that uh, connect climate uh, change and climate insecurity to exacerbating conflicts. What we would like to see is totally the opposite. We would like to, we actually regard climate change as a potential uh, opportunity multiplier. Uh, once we identify that climate impact um, for people um, in conflict even is something um, as a mutual concern, and that they recognize that there should be a mutual understanding, that there should be cooperation uh, and working on solutions together to reduce and mitigate the impacts of climate change, that this could be potentially an opportunity multiplier for bringing down um, antagonism and putting people together to look into things in a more positive direction. Coming up, how Nada Majdalani finds inspiration in the midst of difficult times. 
there are positive examples out there that have worked out uh, for people who have historically been um, in war uh, with millions of, uh, of, of, of victims, uh, millions of tragic stories, but they've, they've found a way out. And this is what we're hoping for. That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking with Nada Majdalani, Palestinian director of Eco Peace Middle East, an Israeli, Jordanian, and Palestinian organization working for peace through environmental cooperation. One of their climate strategies, called the Green Blue Deal, advocates for sustainable development in the Jordan River Valley, in part by creating a water and renewable energy exchange between the three countries. On the Jordan Valley Master Plan, we have uh, done a lot of advocacy to realize some water and infrastructure projects um, and and sanitation projects. And today we have uh, three modern uh, sewage treatment plants uh, constructed and operating at a high technological uh, level, reducing uh, wastewater flowing into the Jordan River. We also uh, have seen lately the declaration of intent between Jordan and Israel, uh, which is also inspired by EcoPeace's uh, concept and third pillar of the Green Blue Deal, which is the exchange of energy and water. The declaration of intent was signed between the Jordanian government and Israeli government and uh, brokered by the uh, Biden administration, uh, specifically John Kerry. Uh, he was there during the signing of the agreement which stipulates exchanging renewable energy produced in Jordan with desalinated water produced in Israel. So these are key successes and key achievements that uh, we have, we're seeing uh, and we're seeing that they are progressing, but there's still so much to do. And at the moment, what EcoPeace is, is trying to do is to have a parallel track where um, renewable energy can be produced in the West Bank, uh, wheeled through the Israeli grid towards Gaza Strip. And this also comes with lots of financial and geopolitical benefits. And that's a really interesting idea of like trading energy for water. One area, one country has a bunch of land, can generate solar. Another country you know, has technology, finance, and we trade energy for water, creating that interdependence. That's part of what Europe tried to do with energy and and Russia. And what do you take from the Ukraine-Russia war? They also thought that trade and interdependence would create peace, and it didn't work out that way. Indeed, um, and I, I, I regard it back again to, to the political will and to the willingness to, to maintain stability um, and uh, to maintain uh, world order. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, political leadership these days is not enabling um, what we've been hoping for. Uh, but uh, there is a positive example of, um, of how agreements of exchange have actually led to stability. Um, and we could possibly um, go back to the positivity of these agreements and build lessons uh, from them and see what has worked out uh, and what did not work out. 
But clearly for the European Union, for example, it did work in, out in the 1950s uh, based on the uh, coal and steel agreement. After the ashes of the World War II, uh, Germany and France uh, basically sat down and strike the deal on coal and steel. Uh, and this led to eventually the creation of the European Union and eventually all the other uh, European commissions that work on several aspects. Um, and eventually now also the European Union has its own green deal uh, for creating jobs and green jobs and financial instruments to um, to adapt to climate change. And this is exactly what inspires us, is that there are positive examples out there that have worked out uh, for people who have historically been um, in war uh, with millions of, uh, of, of, of victims, uh, millions of tragic stories, um, and but they've they've found a way out and this is what we're mm -hmm. hoping for yeah and those those coal and steel deals did create an unprecedented rather unusually long period of peace in europe so um, Ukraine doesn't disprove the, the possibility in other other cases. You know, climate change is often thought of as as um, abstract; doesn't quite have a human face the way uh, you know armed conflict does in the Middle East. So, how does climate change rank when there are more visible, direct, personal threats that people are facing every day? Um. It's uh, it's visible some way in uh, in the extreme weather events that are happening here in the region. Uh, we have witnessed a, f a couple of years ago a, a massive flash flood on the Jordanian side near the Dead Sea, which led to the loss of um, a, a school trip of 21 students. And it was a tragic event to us all. Um, heat waves uh, that we are experiencing uh, these days um, are are terrible, um, and by the end of the century, the projections of scientific papers they speak of the region um, uh, increasing in temperature by four to seven degrees Celsius, which means areas like the Jordan Valley could reach up to fifty fifty six degrees Celsius similar to those in the in the Gulf countries, uh, which would be unhealthy at all for people to be outside. Um, these are things that are that we are now witnessing in a, a fluctuating matter and, and a fluctuating manner. And it's not like something that is continuous. So therefore, people are still not relating directly these issues to climate change. Uh, but what they relate also to is the water scarcity in the region and uh, the lack of precipitation and the shortage of water um, and the, um, uh, the uh, drought uh, of, of some uh, wells, especially in agricultural wells and agricultural areas. Um, but again, because climate change doesn't have a face, uh, Pretty much the public relates um, these water shortages to the current political conflict and that 
specifically the occupation and the uh, the Israeli control over water resources, at least on the Palestinian side, is the main reason for shortage of water. Um, on the Jordanian side, um, um, also they, the public does not see that this is a direct impact of climate change. They see that the um, the flooding of Syrian refugees and refugees from Iraq uh, in the past um, is basically putting more pressure on pressure on water resources and um, and and leading to the water uh, crisis in Jordan. Um, however, we need to recognize, and this is what we always try to educate about, is that all these issues are interconnected and they amplify each other in terms of the impact. Recently, the world saw a new round of violence between Palestine and Israel with rockets being fired on both sides, and yet the work of EcoPeace Middle East continues. Working and thinking about climate and water stress full-time is, is difficult, I know, and I talk to lots of people like that, but I can't imagine what it's like for you doing that in a conflict zone while rockets are being fired. What's that like for you? It, uh, it really makes us sometimes, for everyone else here, uh, in at least in the office in Ramallah, and also I believe in, in Tel Aviv office and everywhere, um, when we take our cars and trains and commute to work and listen to the news and the radio and listen to stories from acquaintances. Um, it makes us sometimes, of course, doubt if we're doing the right thing or not. We doubt if we are in the right zone amid this, you know, crazy, crazy region. Um, but what makes us keep going is this big family of people who are determined and committed to our message. We are committed because if people like us give up, um, who else would do the job? Who else would keep the light of hope going? Um, we are uh, we're not disengaged from the reality. We do understand the different narratives. We do see that people are suffering on ground. Uh, we don't want to see more death. We don't want to see more people suffering. Uh, but sometimes these things are beyond our capability as an NGO of 50 to 60 staff. We do what we can do in terms of bringing people together to the understanding that we must survive to together and that we must not be killing each other, and that we have a higher agenda. It's a shared future and a shared concern. And it's, um, it's, it's basically a... Um, I, I always have this uh, metaphor of, of, of the Titanic, um, of being, you know, some people with adaptive capacity to climate change, to conflict, to water scarcity, to whatever. And they are just like those who are sitting in the um, first class uh, sipping champagne and uh, in the dance and ballroom. And other people are with Jack, with less capacity to do so, um, and a uh, little bit 
uh, less fortunate. But when the iceberg hit the Titanic, everybody was in the Atlantic Ocean looking for survival. And everybody was forced to sit on the same boat and work things out together in order to reach safety. And this is exactly what we need to learn, is to survive together rather than kill each other. We have a higher responsibility today to our future and to our children. Um, I have two daughters. One is uh, nine years and the other is six years old. And I want a better future for them. Um, no mother should be crying for the loss of her son. And no child should be burying their parents uh, at a time that they should not be. Humanity deserves a chance. And, uh, and, and people like us, despite all what is happening, we need to keep the hope going. I mean, even at EcoPeace, for the past 26 years, we have survived the Second Intifada, we have survived uh, several wars on Gaza, we have survived uh, riots and escalations in, in Jerusalem. Um, uh, but it's the spirit of the team who's working here day and night to make a difference, supported by the participants who also are supportive to us and continue to work with us. So it's not only the 50 people around the three offices of EcoPeace, it's also the, um, the courage that comes with the participants uh, from the educational program, from some of the stakeholders, from some community leaders on ground who give us also a chance not to give up. That's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Nada Majdalani is the Palestine Director for Echo Peace Middle East, an Israeli, Jordanian, and Palestinian organization working for peace through environmental cooperation. Nada, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights from Ramallah today. Thank you. Thank you, Greg, and to everyone else. On this Climate One, we've been talking with two leaders working towards climate action and conflict zones. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be difficult, awkward, sometimes depressing, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society and all parts of the world. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review if you're listening on Apple. You can do that right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations and start to take more action. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>